You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 4th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. It seems that the United States is putting India and other countries on notice and that they want these countries to look at alternatives, the United States being first and foremost their option, and of course oil producing countries like Saudi Arabia, Iraq and Kuwait, among others. Sanctions on Iran drive oil buying nations elsewhere. My guests Holly Dagres and Somneth Batabayal will discuss that and the day's other news, including eye-watering pollution in New Delhi and Goodbye Burkow examining the role of parliamentary speakers around the world. Plus, if any one country can get a gold medal in this, Japan can. Roll on the Olympics. Reflections on a soft power triumph. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Holly Dagres, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and editor of the Iran Source blog, and Somnath Batabayal, lecturer in media in development and international journalism at SOAS. We will start in India, which this past weekend hosted US Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, one of very few current American officials to have held their post continuously throughout the presidency of Donald Trump. He must therefore be considered a favourite for the $250,000 one-year contract to promote one of Trump's hotels when this is all over. Mnuchin sought to reassure Indian officials that the United States is toiling to ensure global oil supplies, especially to those nations, India very much among them, who were buying quite a lot of their oil from Iran prior to the US imposition of sanctions on Tehran. Um, Holly, is there any part of this that was actually what the US sanctions on Iran were about in the first place? Is there part of it that is about protecting uh, legacy suppliers of oil, including uh, America and its allies? Well, I think there is some aspect of that, of course. But um, the reality is that when the United States reimposed these sanctions, U.S. President Donald Trump was hoping to get a better deal than his predecessor, Barack Obama. He was hoping that by imposing these sanctions, whether they be oil, banking, um, on aspects of the Iranian government, that they were going to somehow pressure the Iranian people, perhaps, to even overthrow the government or that they would actually come to a table and give them everything they've always wanted. So um, I I think there is an element there, what you were talking about, but there's a lot more to it. Uh, Somnath, how reassured will Indians be by Steve Mnuchin's reassurances? (laughs) Um, Well, um, the India has already caved into that pressure. By you know, in by May June, they had decided that they'll significantly cut down on oil imports um, from um, uh, uh, four fifths of the oil come from there. So they have already moved towards the U.S. and Venezuela. So U.S. all uh, you know, U.S. has done well out of the sanctions. And um, the, the, I think there was already a bit of difficulty India had got in with the U.S. over the trade trade agreements mm. which are being negotiated right now. So India's caving in uh, was um, happened quite easily, unlike what's going on in China, and China has been refusing to uh, take on the US pressure. So I don't think India will fight this battle for very long and cave in. They will increase um, imports from Saudi Arabia. The oil prices will go up. In the domestic scenario, it harms Indian and the Indian politics and politicians quite significantly because the moment the oil prices go up, 
the common man is affected and mm. indian economy is doing quite badly at the moment and the 20% increase in oil prices has affected the indian economy quite uh, quite badly but the um i think they are refraining from angering us on this front very much just to follow that up quickly somnath the fact that india was buying so much oil from iran in the first place was that just because iranian oil was cheaper and closer is there any particular warm feeling between new delhi and tehran generally well it's been a historic kind of uh, tie up uh, and it goes back again uh, india always has kept a pretty decent relationship with uh, iran um so the prices um, i mean i'm not sure of the exact differences between saudi oil and iranian oil but it was a i think last 30 to 40 years india has depended very heavily and in fact the last five um, but 10 years back the they had increased the amount of imports from iran uh, uh, holly does this fit in with what is clearly the united states wider plan here to try and prize customers or scare customers away from iran Um absolutely there is to an extent. I mean, at the end of the day the United States has said that they are going to sanction anybody that does dealings with Iran whether it's on banking or oil. And when these um sanctions were reimposed starting in May 2018 after the United States withdrew the it's ironic actually that they actually were able to provide these sanctions waivers to eight oil um, buying countries including India and it wasn't until May of this year a year later that they were just they decided that if you guys um we're not going to allow this to happen anymore you have to look for other options and it's worth noting that it's actually the United States that's the largest oil producer at the moment and this is why these oil prices haven't been doing so bad the way we anticipated over the summer with these um incidents in the Persian Gulf where these oil tankers were being attacked or the Aramco attacks um in September and especially during the the crisis between the United States and Iran when a US drone was shot down over the Persian Gulf and there was this talks of these this potential war happening so it it, it seems that the the United States is putting um India and other countries on notice and that they want these countries to look at alternatives the United States being first and foremost their option and of course oil producing countries like Saudi Arabia Iraq and Kuwait among others uh, so now this there also an aspect to this from the United States point of view of just wondering if maybe India uh, is a place that might be more receptive to the idea of uh, Trump's America than a lot of the United States more traditional allies is it is it possible to generalize about what view of him Indians have given that India has of course in recent times re-elected a sort of nationalist populist strongman of its own. I mean in it's a it's a quick and fast it's a extrapolation but I would generally tend to agree that India and Indian politics in the last 10 years has shifted away from the non-aligned position it is to have mm. and also from Russia uh towards the US so there is that uh, definitely that direction and what perhaps rings true is the quick capitulation which india had the moment this was um, announced by the us the, um, in about may indian oil corporations which are all nationalized quickly fell into line and shifted their oil supplies um, to other countries uh, venezuela mostly and and also the us so yes perhaps and and 
India in this global fight for terror has aligned with the U.S. generally and hoping to, for the U.S. to move away from Pakistan and China and be, be their allies. So, yes, a general direction in politics has been closed, more closely aligned with the U.S. than with the Soviet bloc. Uh, and Holly, returning to the subject of Iran, and I guess this is a, a factor uh, in this, this scenario because a lot of this is about the United States withdrawal from the nuclear deal that reports just in the last hour or so that Iran has declared or acknowledged or boasted or I'm not really sure how they're framing this anymore, uh, that they are now operating uh, 60 IR6 centrifuges, which is actually in obvious flagrant violation of the nuclear deal. Um, is it possible to tell where Tehran thinks it's going with this at the moment? Because it has, of course, we should remind listeners, kept managed to keep everybody else in the deal apart from the United States. But uh, I'm not really sure if this is making everybody else look like fools for taking Iran's word for anything. Well, um, I think it's worth noting that Article 26 of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or better known as the Iran deal, actually explicitly says that Iran has a right to withdraw from some or all aspects of the Iran nuclear agreement if sanctions are reimposed. So technically speaking, <laughs> Iran is not violating. But you'll find that some government, foreign governments, especially those that have signed on to this uh, multilateral agreement, will say otherwise. But having that been said, I, I think what's going on here is that Iran waited patiently for a year, um, May 2018, after the United States withdrew, for the Europeans and the remaining signatories to deliver on something that would help Iran avoid these sanctions or that they would be able to um, sell their oil. And the Europeans, that being Britain, France, and uh, Germany, the E3, ha have repeatedly said that they're going to do something about it. They promised a special purpose vehicle, but we really haven't seen them do anything. And it was over this summer that the Iranians decided, well, enough is enough. We're going to start withdrawing from aspects of the steel per Article 26. And so they've been doing this. This is actually the third time, November 7th being the official date. And they're going to keep doing this until something happens or they have to withdraw altogether. But it's very calculated, I would say. They know what they're doing and they're not doing it in a way that they technically are in violation. Somnath Batabayal and Holly Dagres, thank you both. We'll have more from you in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Ben Rylan has some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. A number of protesters have been shot dead by security forces in the Iraqi capital, Baghdad. It means that more than 250 people are now known to have been killed in demonstrations since the start of October. The protesters want other countries to stop interfering in Iraq's internal affairs. Donald Trump has said the name of the whistleblower at the center of an impeachment inquiry should be revealed. The U.S. president claims that the individual has given false information and, without providing evidence, has also suggested that the whistleblower could potentially be guilty of fraud. And Microsoft Japan says that its sales shot up by nearly 40% during an experiment in which staff worked a four-day week on full pay. Microsoft's experiment is being watched closely in Japan, which traditionally has some of the longest working hours in the world. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Andrew. 
Thanks, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller, still here with Holly Dagres and Somnath Batabayal. Let's move along somewhat, but we will be staying in India, where this past weekend the air in the country's capital, New Delhi, not often compared to a rose garden in spring, has been noticeably putrid even by the city's standards. Dozens of flights were diverted from Indira Gandhi International Airport as the runways were occluded by the smog, and schools were closed. Indeed, will remain so until tomorrow at least. New Delhi's pollution is often bad at this time of year. It's a combination of dropping temperatures, farmers burning off fields and Diwali fireworks. Uh, But Somnath, this particular weekend, how bad has it been? Yeah, I mean, there was an amazing um, photo op which the chief minister of Delhi did recently where he was handing out masks to children. And he thought... He's not really realizing what the problem is. Five million masks were distributed over the last week. That is a bad look when you say <laughs> children cannot breathe the air so in our country's here is capital, a mask. literally. Here is a mask. So um, the Supreme Court today has called up the government saying that their effort is absolutely lackadaisical and has asked them to get in um, experts in, uh, for a hearing uh, immediately. And this is the Supreme Court today morning, which has, uh, and I think they have adjourn the meeting till the government files a proper reply. Now, there are certain things which has to be immediately done. You know, there's a long-term plan which the government needs has not been coming up with. But 46% of the pollution in the air, apparently, uh, I mean, between 40 and 50%, is from crop burning. Mm. And this happens in Chandigarh and Haryana. Now, this has to stop immediately. So, I mean, that can provide an immediate releasing of pressure. There are long-term implications, of course, infrastructure, automobiles, industries, um, what you allow to build, where you allow to build. But those are slightly longer-term conversations which the government has to now realistically start with. And you and I, Andrew, have, I mean, I, I was just telling Holly that we probably have done 20 shows on pollution in the, <laughs> in the last seven years. Uh, but uh, the immediate thing is law enforcement. Somebody has to act on Chandigarh and Haryana and get this done. States keep passing the buck. You know, uh, the center says it's state because Delhi is now a state uh, and Chandigarh and Haryana doesn't want to comply because huge amount of money comes from these big farmers. So there's a farming lobby which tries to protect. So vested interests get in. But the situation is beyond um, anything imaginable now. Um, Holly, the dynamic we're witnessing here is not restricted to New Delhi. It's become quite common, especially in big Chinese cities, where where it's it's taking place in countries which have industrialised quickly. And obviously, there is an admirable component to that. Both China and India have lifted hundreds of millions of people uh, out of poverty in the last few decades. But there does come a point at which, uh, well, the bill gets presented, doesn't it? I mean, it's really complicated because, I mean, I lived in Cairo for five and a half years and I can totally relate to that pollution where in the Nile Delta every year around this time you get that smoke coming into Cairo and... And it's it's kind of a juggle, industry, farming, and the meeting the middle ground. But I think um, the bigger question here is, I mean, yeah, we... We put a lot of focus on India and China here, but we have other we have developed countries that are doing the same thing. But because these are developing countries, they're getting more of the pushback. And I think what what really needs to happen here is that that the developed world, the Western countries, should lead the charge instead of putting the blame and mitigating mm. and pointing fingers at other people and and kind of saying, well, we need to do better things and maybe help these other countries and show that this is what we've done in our own countries and we can help mitigate the problem together.
together because, I mean, what's happening in India and China isn't just going to happen in India and China. It's going to affect the whole world. And the same in Cairo or in Egypt or the United States where we're still burning coal. So what we really need to do is get our heads together and realize that these problems are not just specific to countries. It's affecting everyone with this climate crisis we're all facing right now. Uh, Somnath, we were talking at the top of the show about the demonstrations in Iraq, which, like many demonstrations occurring around the world at the moment, appear to be demonstrations against more or less everything. Um, It's hard to imagine a more fundamental abrogation of people's ability to live than not being able to step outside and breathe. If we refocus this back to India, does there come a point at which large numbers of people, well, it's tempting to argue that the pollution may actually put the demonstrations against it off by itself, but does there come a point um, at which the population uh, in critical mass demands that something be done and be done quickly? It's a conundrum. Um, It's the middle classes who push agenda in most parts of the world, including India. Um, But the the middle classes will be, uh, you know, um, slightly... uh, Put in difficult circumstances, they can't use their cars, they can't use their air conditioners, we'll be asking them to make some sacrifices. So there's this playoff which constantly happens. Having said this, um, there is no issue in the last 20 years which the newspapers, the television and the magazines have covered as consistently and, and, and actively as environmental degradation, especially in Delhi, because... Um, it's been judicially, there has been a huge amount of activism in this front. Um, the journalists have constantly uh, tried to uh, raise awareness. So since the 90s, till, t- till about 2010, there was a huge movement in uh, bringing pollution under control, um, in making diesel, diesel cars illegal, not allowing trucks and lorries at certain times. So it's not that we have been oblivious to it. But unless it's led by government policy, these all fall short. In, um, so, for example, from the mid-90s till about 2000, as um, diesel was outlawed, there was a huge improvement in air quality. But the sheer number of vehicles increased so much that that was mitigated. So there's, this, it just plays off against each other. And unless, as I said, unless backed by strong government action, this will not go away. Okay, well, let's look finally on our news panel at the UK, but before any of our listeners summarily defenestrate their radios, not at Brexit, or at least not directly. It's it's a bit like staring into the sun. Um, MPs will today decide upon a new speaker to succeed John Burkow, who has stepped down after more than a decade in the job. Burkow has, it is fair to say, enjoyed his work, especially during the tumults of Brexit, during which he has made himself much less popular with his own Conservative Party than with its many opponents and given little indication of any reluctance vis-a-vis the spotlight. Um, Holly, first of all, have you been in general a John Burkow fan? I do love the calls of order, order. (laughs) (laughs) My son says that, order, order. I, I think I think there's been um, few, few British politicians managed to make their ways through American news, and I, I think Bur, um, John is one of them. I mean, even the average American, if they're watching the news, they've definitely heard of him. And I think I just read this morning a Belgian singer made a mus- music wow. <laughs> a, a song using his um, audio, and I thought that was just so amusing and perfect timing for everything. A, a, a friend of mine, the formidably talented Rodri Marsden, who was interviewed recently on Monocle 24 about his disco concept album about Brexit, uh, also 
it's worth looking up. Um, he also had a viral hit a while ago by, if I recall it rightly, he superimposed John Burkow calling the name of Mr. Peter Bone uh, MP over the opening bars of <laughs> Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Um, <laughs> Which weirdly became, again, a massive global hit. Somnath, what is it about John Burkow that has, has turned him into an international superstar? Well, um, the position that he occupies, uh, most speakers would be want to be anonymous. Um, we don't remember Speaker Martin. I can't even remember what he looks like. Because the there's supposed to be, we should note, an, an impartial, impartial deciding yeah. authority. <clears throat> yes, and I think... John Burko loves the limelight and, and he has used it. Um, I mean, his procedural rulings has, on one hand, given back so much leverage to the commons. On the other hand, it has, as you said, put him against the Brexiteers in Parliament. Well, that's been the fun part, though. He has given back control um, the, and, and to, the people complained most about it were the ones who wanted to take indeed. it. I, I don't know. It's strange. It, there's this one brilliant line he used on Tim Lawton, the, the children's minister. He said, the children's minister should stop acting like a child. I loved it. <laughs> it is this fun lines. Um, Holly, how does the, the, the British parliamentary speaker compare with counterparts elsewhere? Because most countries which uh, you know, have or affect to have a parliamentary system do have a Speaker of the House. Yes, we have Nancy Pelosi at the, in the United States, who's a Democrat. I mean, I mean, the, she, the, what, what's interesting about Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats right now is that there's just a lot of controversy regarding... Um, are they are the politicians putting the party first over country? And so that's kind of been something that Nancy Pelosi has been grappling with, unlike um, John Burt, who was um, kind of seen as this partisan leader, I yeah. guess. Right. And so um, I think there's also been viral moments with Nancy Pelosi. We just had that picture the other week where she's standing up against Trump in the White House. So she has her moments or she's wearing her nice designer red um, coat walking out of the White House looking defiant. And so, she seems furious and yeah. no one would want to go up against her. But again, it's a, but it's a different role in the United States, of yeah. course, because yeah. the Speaker of the House of Representatives is not at all an impartial figure and, and has no pretenses to being one. They're yeah. the leader of the majority party. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does it work in India, Somnath? Have they just borrowed directly from the Westminster system? Indeed, indeed. You know, our colonial masters have passed it on. <laughs> but, but thankfully, we have always had speakers, you know, if you listen to them, you go off to sleep. So uh, not much um, in the range of John Beckham, but maybe he will inspire uh, one of our leaders to take on a more activist role. Um, but whatever else we will remember Burko for. He has changed, uh, you know, how speakers are viewed um, in Parliament. And, and it's not a boring role any longer. So that's why there's so much attention now. I, mean, I, I didn't think I used to bother about who the speaker be in the, uh, every time there was an election. But this time we're all looking forward to it. It's changed the dynamics. Uh, it's a tough act to follow. Uh, Holly, is it a reasonable criticism of John Burkow because it was certainly made that, that he had a... Well, how to put it, um, no particular difficulty with the view in his shaving mirror uh, of a morning. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, feel like I don't know if I should comment on that. <laughs> but, 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 but when he, when he was exiting Parliament, he, he did clear a noticeably large amount of time when there were other things, frankly, that did require discussing for MPs to queue up to tell him how marvellous he was and what a wonderful job he'd done. 
I mean, he's a memorable person. He likes the limelight. Yeah, I think he does. I think he sometimes he says certain things the way um, Boris Johnson did his hair all all over the place and that brought attention. He does this with his words. So I I think uh, it it was a big moment. And I mean, he was the face of what was going on with Brexit. And I mean, everybody heard his voice and that was what resonated. But also he made it quite personal. I think he, he was clearly of the Remainer camp and he almost seemed to use his position and malevolent. He had this smile when he would say, no, I won't allow you this. And I felt that, I mean, this is the danger that, of course, he will be looked on as a partisan speaker, which the position doesn't allow. Holly Dagres and Somnath Batabayal, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, reflections on a triumphant capital. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. The Rugby World Cup, which finished this past weekend in victory for South Africa, was widely considered a triumph and one that bodes well for Japan's 2020 Olympic efforts. We reflect now on the unique and wonderful tone of Tokyo. Japan completed its hosting of the Rugby World Cup on the weekend with a plomb. By all accounts, the tournament has been a big win for the host nation. Alas, lifting the cup itself was beyond the home team. Finals week in Tokyo saw a fair few bloody noses and painted faces. It was Halloween after all. But how much has the Japanese capital changed since it started preparing for the Olympics next summer? Some things not at all. Cash is still king and coins are essential to getting around. Pack your biggest wallet and don't be afraid to let it dangle out of your back pocket. This continues to be a very safe city. Technology often adds unnecessary layers of tedium. Buying an online ticket to see a band requires the team efforts of colleagues and possibly friends in Tokyo. The job includes typing out your name in Japanese characters and many trips to the 7-Eleven. Elsewhere, changes are afoot. Levels of written English and openness to speaking it have both improved. Restaurants with We Welcome Foreigners signs are a case in point. Awareness of plastic waste has finally arrived, but there's a long way to go. Before a semi-final game in Yokohama Stadium, volunteers were handing out crisp plastic bags with TRY written on them as souvenirs. Try harder, more like. But the single biggest difference has to be the uptake of cycling. Pavements are no longer the preserve of pedestrians who constantly have to step aside these zippy two-wheelers. Many bikes are steered by Japanese mums with a child seat or two attached. It's an encouraging sign for the environment and maybe for Japan's falling fertility rate. Speeds are probably a lot lower during the nursery run. Cycling in cities is to be encouraged, but Tokyo's many narrow streets make it impossible to retrofit dedicated lanes. Mayor Yuriko Koike should consider scrapping pavements and require all road users to share the street in an intelligent, polite and considerate way. If any one country can get a gold medal in this, Japan can. Roll on the Olympics. That was The View from the editorial floor, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machalari and researched by Yolene Goffan and Sam Johannes. Our studio managers were Bill Lutie and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Goodbye. Goodbye.